Today, we look at the large apocalypse, Revelation. And we ask the question, what does this book say about the end? Is this the end? When will Jesus come back? And what is the real message, the real story of Revelation? So let's dive right in. So turn to Revelation at the back of your Bible. And we'll begin in chapter 1, verse 1. A revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. Christ made it known by sending it through his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the witness of Jesus Christ, including all that John saw. Favored is the one who reads the words of this prophecy out loud, and favored are those who listen to it being read, and keep what is written in it, for the time is near. And look at verse 4, because many people miss this. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace and peace to you for the one who is and was and is coming. What is that? That's a greeting. That means that this is a letter. Because this is how almost all the letters in the New Testament begin. So this is a letter to seven churches in Asia, or Asia Minor, so that's modern-day Turkey, over in the western part of Turkey. So knowing that this is a letter helps us to ask the right questions when we study it. Because this is a letter, that means it's addressing specific circumstances. So if we're going to understand this, we have to know the context. That means that we need to know what was going on in the life of the church. And then we ask, how does that situation help us to understand this letter? And then we can ask, how does this speak to us today? So maybe it would help you to know that Revelation is written in apocalyptic literature. That's the style. So this style of literature includes dreams and visions, and it's strange, and it's different, and there's imagery and symbolism, and it's so confusing because we wonder, what does this all mean? How do we make sense of this? Apocalyptic literature was used in times of crisis. The second half of Daniel, part of Isaiah, some of Ezekiel was written in this style. And this was a common form of literature that people used, especially in the time between the Old Testament and the New Testament. So John, who is the author of this letter, is an exile on the island of Patmos. And he writes this letter to the seven churches. If you can see this map, you'll see that there are seven churches, and they form a kind of semicircle. That was the mail route. And that's the order that John addresses these churches. 
And so chapters 2 and 3 contain a short letter to each of these churches. And this was written around the year 95 AD. And Domitian was the emperor during this time. Now, I told you before we started that there are some good, faithful, Jesus-loving people who see this book differently. So let me quickly walk you through four different ways that people view the book of Revelation. And we're just going to touch on this. The first style is the futurist style. And the futurist view says that everything in this book is about the end of time. They say that nothing has happened yet. That now is the end. And we're going to see this play out. And so these are the people who watch the news. And they're wondering, how does this line up with the book of Revelation? And they're looking for a one-to-one -one correspondence. And to be honest, this is a very popular view in the United States. And only in the United States. It's very popular with the TV preachers and preachers you hear on the radio. If you read or watched the Left Behind books and movies, this is what they portray. And I told you, whenever I was a teenager and I sat through several Pentecostal church services, that there were charts and graphs and outlines and a two-week revival of going through this. And I've tried to understand this, but with my head and my heart, I can't connect the dots. And it doesn't click. And when I look at the reasons that people use for this, I think it's a very dubious interpretation. The next one is historicist. Now, this was held by most of the Protestant reformers. And it was a popular view up until the 1800s. And the historicist view says that John saw into the future all the way to the second coming of Jesus. And they say that every chapter is about a certain age. Like chapters 6, 7, and 8 are about the decline of Rome. Chapter 9 is the rise of Islam. Chapter 10 is the Protestant Reformation. And so this view is looking at how does this line up with history and how can we apply this scripture to this time of history? It's not a very popular view today. The next is the preterist view. And preterist means past. And this means that John was writing about what was about to happen or had just happened in his lifetime. That Revelation is describing a 20 to 40 year period around 95 AD. And the last view is the idealist, which says that while Revelation describes what was happening in the first century, that battle between good and evil is repeated in every generation. Of the 
scholars that I read and that I trust, they say that you want to combine these last two ideas. That if we read Revelation in the historical context, we got to look at that period around 95 AD. But if we look at the history of how the early church fathers read the Bible, they read the Bible seriously, but they knew that what makes Scripture different than literature is there's something deeper in Scripture that it still applies to us today. And so this book, like all of Scripture, it still speaks to us. It's still important. So the combination of this preterist and idealist views are what I think is the most faithful way to view this book. Now for just a little bit more history. In the Roman Empire, they worshipped several gods. In every city, there were a variety of temples dedicated to different gods and goddesses. And Rome was even personified by a goddess, Roma. She was a warrior, and she embodied all the qualities that Rome thought was good and awesome. Smyrna, one of the seven churches that receives this letter, was the first city to build a major temple to Rome. Now, in ancient Rome, if you wanted to show that you were a good citizen, you didn't pledge allegiance to the flag. What you did is you went into the temple, you made a sacrifice or an offering in that Roman temple. And then you went next door to the temple of Augustus, to a current reigning emperor, and you made a sacrifice there. So in the Roman Empire, you made sacrifices to Rome, the empire, and the emperor. This is the conflict these Christians have in this first century. That to be seen as a good and loyal citizen, you need to make your offering to Rome and the emperor, but the scriptures tell us not to do that. So what do we do? What are we supposed to do? How do we live? How do we remain most faithful to Jesus in this culture? Now, back when I was a teenager and I got my first study Bible, the thought was that Revelation was addressing intense persecution that Christians were going through. Today, most scholars are saying that Revelation is warning these Christians that if you follow Jesus and you refuse to bow down and worship the emperor, persecution will be coming. But the message of the book is don't be afraid. God is in control. In the end, good wins. In the end, love wins. In the end, God wins. So don't be scared. That's the message. So uh, let's quickly walk through this letter 
together. This can take us about 14 minutes, so if your shoes are too tight, take them off and lean forward. You ready? All right, so chapter one gave us the backstory. Chapters two and three are the letters to the individual churches. Now, let me tell you, as you read these letters to the churches, you're going to find yourself in many of them. Ephesus lost his first love. They lost their passion. Can you relate to that? In Smyrna, one of the things that was happening was that Jews were pushing Christians out of the synagogue. They were saying, Christianity, that ain't Judaism. You can't worship with us. Do you know how that was a problem? Because in the Roman Empire, Judaism, being a Jew, was a legal religion. So if Christians are not Jews, if Christianity is not part of Judaism, that means that Christians are not exempt from worshiping the emperor. In Pergamum, there was a temple that was called the Seat of Satan. That's referenced in the letter. And in Laodicea, the problem is that they've become lukewarm in their faith. Not hot, not cold. And Jesus threatens to spit them out. And in these letters, we can find ourselves. And then the letter picks up in chapters 4 and 5. We have this picture of worship in heaven. Because this letter is all about worship. And you can find him after him in this letter. Look at chapter 4, verses 8 through 11. They never rest, day or night, but keep on saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is coming. The 24 elders fall before the one seated on the throne. And they worship the one who lives forever and always. They bow down. They throw down their crowns. And they say, you are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power because you created all things. Lord and God are titles that emperors use for themselves. Kings would throw their crowns down as a sign of respect and allegiance and loyalty. So the question that's being asked right here is, who are you going to worship? An earthly emperor or the heavenly king? Chapter 6 is interesting. There's these seals that are unleashed. And it looks like these are plagues on the earth, but now scholars think that John is describing what the Roman Empire truly stands for. All right, there's these four horsemen. You've heard about them, right? There's the white horseman who goes out and he conquers. That's what Rome does. About 25 years before this letter was written, Rome conquered Judea. And slaughtered 1.1 million Jews. We spoke about that last week. And then there's 
wars that are fought on the fringes of the empire and a red horse shows out and people die in wars and battles because that is what Rome is about. And because of those wars and battles, there's a famine. There's not enough food for people to eat and people are starving and they're dying. So this pale, sickly, green horse goes out and this is death and disease and sickness because that's what Rome is about. And then, this, this empire, Rome, that's what this empire stands for? That's, they're saying that we should worship it. This empire that stands for conquering and war and famine and death. Why would you worship those things? And in chapter 7, in heaven we see 144,000 who are sealed with God's mark. Now this number represents all, say that, all of God's people. And we see those who have died for their faith, their worship around the Chapter 7, verses 15 through 17. They worship him day and night in his temple. And the one seated on the throne will shelter them. They won't hunger or thirst anymore. No sun or scorching heat will beat down on them. Because the lamb who is in the midst of the throne will shepherd them. He will lead them to springs of life giving water. And this beautiful prayer. God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. These people who laid down their life, who lost everything for their faith, they have this huge reward in heaven. Chapters 8, 9, 10, and 11 are about the judgment of God on the Roman Empire. So the big picture here is that no evil empire will last. That every evil government will be brought down. That God's justice will prevail. Chapters 12 and 13 involve a dragon. We're told that Satan himself who wages war against a pregnant woman in the sky. So who is this woman? Now, to be honest with you, we're a little bit confused by this. Most people think that at first she's Israel who gave birth to Jesus. Because remember, Jesus was born a Jew. And then it's Mary, the mother of Jesus. And then the church who gives birth to new believers, to new Christians. And Satan wages war against her. God throws the dragon down. God wins. So this is an encouraging word. And in chapter 13, the dragon calls forth two beasts. The beast who represents him is the Roman Empire. And this beast wants to be worshipped and places its image in various places throughout the empire. Then there's a smaller, lesser beast who stands for Rome's representatives 
who demand that people bow down to the image of Rome or the emperor or both in order to be able to buy and sell. And then in chapter 13, verse 18, we're told the beast's number, for it's a human being's number. His number is 666. 666, the mark of the beast. What's this all about? All right. Let's take a second. Get our breath. And remember our history. Rome had the power to say who could and could not buy and sell. So I'm comfortable saying that this could just be a figure of speech. If it's a literal mark, it could be the ashes that will get on you as you bow down at the temple. So ashes on your forehead. Or ashes from the candle as you offer your offering. That's just how we get on your hand. So the number of the beast is 666. Uh, you know from looking at the clock with Roman numerals that in some cultures, letters can also represent numbers. So maybe you know this. In Latin, Greek, and Hebrew, Letters also represented numbers. They had a numerical value. And so if you add up the value of the letters in Nero Caesar, you get 666. Nero died in 68 AD. But there is this widespread rumor that he didn't really die. That his suicide was staged. So there was this conspiracy, this fear that he was coming back. That he was going to take over power again. And some people even thought that Domitian was Nero reincarnated. Or that Nero's evil spirit was on the current emperor. Chapters 14, 15, and 16 are about God's wrath being poured out. On the Roman Empire, the evil empire. And then chapter 17 has a woman. She's a prostitute. The beast has seven heads. In ancient literature, do you remember what Rome was called? The city built on seven hills. Verse 8 tells us that this woman's name is Babylon. The Babylonians are the ones who destroyed Solomon's temple in Jerusalem in 586 B.C. And then last week, we talked about how the Romans destroyed the second temple in 70 A.D. After that event, Babylon became the code name for Rome. And Rome is destroyed in chapter 18. Chapter 19 is this great celebration, and Jesus comes riding in on a white horse, faithful and true. In chapter 20, we find Satan utterly destroyed, and then there's a new Jerusalem in chapter 21. And look at these verses from chapter 21. They're beautiful. And then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, 
For the former heaven and the former earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. I saw the holy city. I saw the holy city. New Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling is here with humankind. He will dwell with them, and they will be his peoples. God himself will be with them as their God, and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. There will be no mourning, crying, or pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And we end with a beautiful scene in the garden. The river of life flows from the throne of God. So how do I read this book? I read this as the conclusion to the story of Scripture. Because remember, the real story of the Bible begins in a garden. And what happens in the garden? There is a curse. The story of the Bible ends in a garden. And the curse is broken because there's no more curse because God has redeemed the world. But how did God redeem the world? Between that first garden and the last garden, there's another garden. It's that garden where Jesus is praying Father, if it's your will, take this cup of suffering away from me. However, not my will, but your will must be done. And then Jesus hangs on the cross and he dies for our sin. And as he's hanging on that cross, he prays, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And then in John's gospel, he tells us there's a garden where Jesus is raised from the dead. He appears as a gardener to Mary because Jesus has come to restore the earth. Do you see the story of Scripture here? It's a beautiful story. And the story of Scripture is meant to encourage you and to challenge you. And this letter especially is asking you, who do you worship? Who do you give your heart to? And what price will you pay to remain faithful? That's the story. That's the message of this letter.